Welcome to the Human Centered Leadership Podcast with me, your host, Kulmahe. I have worked in the leadership space for three decades, and now I work with organizations and leaders to develop powerful cultures of high value and performance that is built all around their people. We will interview leaders from around the world and at the very top end of their game to explore what emotional intelligence in practice actually looks like and the benefits that it could bring to any team. This is a movement to transform the way that we see leadership and to create powerful cultures where people feel seen, heard, valued and appreciated and consequently perform to the very best. Why don't you join the movement and subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to click on notifications to stay up to date with all new content. Welcome to another episode where I get to speak to incredible people from around the world. And I say around the world, I think this week this is my second trip out to the other side of the world. So today I walked, I took the cats for a walk, I don't know, many of you know that I like to take my cats for a walk and they put them on leads and Coco and Elvis will run around in our large garden, they love it. But today they were a bit perturbed because today we've just had a sudden frost and I've been talking to my guest now who's coming on and they're in like 30 degrees so you could literally not get more opposite than we are right now. So my guest today is Sophie Bretag. Sophie's an awesome, awesome lady. I've been following her on LinkedIn for a while now. Um, she's a mom of two boys. Uh, she's the wife of a police officer, which I didn't know about until we've had our pre-recording interview. So I'm really, really keen on digging into that because obviously I have, I've been a police officer. I have a lot of interest in policing. She's an HR consultant, but before that she had seven years in the HR industry. So I really wanted to get into Sophie's head a bit to understand what human-centered leadership looks like and how, you know, in the, particularly in a post-COVID world, I think the world has changed on its axis. What does that look like in organizations? So firstly, welcome to our uh, show. Thanks very much for being here. I have no idea what time it is over in Queensland with you. Thanks, cool. It's so lovely to be here. Uh, it is currently 8.30-ish, 8.30, 8.40pm here so not too late in the night I think we're about t 10 hours apart so it's not too bad yeah yeah that's not too bad <laughs> but it's lovely to be here I think I was talking to somebody in New Zealand the other day and they were like 13 hours and I felt really really guilty because I was like I was fine <laughs> you know <laughs> I've actually had that happen in America. So I've done um, recordings in the US and I think one of the last recordings I did was at 3am and, um, yeah, it was crazy and I was waiting. I think I drank about four coffees and I was going, oh, I don't know if I can stay. And I was too scared to go to sleep in case I didn't wake up and so I literally stayed awake all day and all night <laughs> just to do this podcast. It was worth it. Yeah. By the time you got to your podcast, A, you want, you're dying to go to the loop. Secondly, you're like buzzing. Yeah. <laughs> you're probably running around in the room, are you? Yeah it, was, yeah, it was a bit crazy and my dog was just passed out next to me going, why are you still awake? This is weird. Well, listen, Sophie, <laughs> as you know, we've been trying to get this, uh, this recording done for a long while now and um, mm. I'm so pleased I've managed to catch you. And the one thing that stands out with Sophie, you know, you only have to see an image of Sophie and it was that that drew me to her. Your hair... <laughs> is probably the best hair I have ever seen, it's honestly. It just, it just oozes personality. You've got this beautiful, is it, it's like a reddy orange colour, isn't it? It's just a beautiful colour. I love it. It's orange. We'll go flame. Just call me a walking flame. The reason why I probably like your hair so much is because burnt orange is my favourite colour. 
And my wife's. We love it. Oh, there you go. So see? like on all of our branding, you'll always see some burnt orange somewhere. Always. It's just our colour. So I'm drawn to it. That'd be the sacral um, colour as well. So it's a really creative. I had no idea. Yeah. So that's your sacral chakra. And that's, that's the colour is right. orange for that um, chakra in your body. And that is um, your creativity. So that's probably why, because you were saying you're very cre- creative and very strategic and you're like a big thinker. Yeah, chop me in half, I'm going to be orange, I reckon. There you go. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Definitely. <laughs> but listen, Sophie, you do some incredible work as an HR consultant, but your journey to becoming your title right now, tell me about that journey because this was a journey that happened you know, over the last few years, isn't it? When we're talking about the post-COVID world, COVID changed your world, didn't it? Yeah, it totally did. It opened up a whole new world for me. And I know that COVID has been, it's had such a varied impact on everybody throughout the world. Uh, For me, I would like to say it was probably a blessing Mm. uh, because it gave me an opportunity to step into something that if if I could do this for the rest of my life, I will die happy. So... A little bit about me, I, sorry, I did a country posting with my husband, we were talking earlier, um, with his work, Mm. and I kind of fell into human resources because I always knew I was great at talking to people, I love people, I'm really interested in finding out about what makes people tick, and um, my husband actually said to me, he goes, oh, there's a human resource job going, and I was like, I don't even know, what is that? And this was about, I don't know, 10, 11 years, no, about 11 years ago now. And he said, maybe you you should try that. And it was going at the local council where we were moving to. And I was like, well, I don't even know what this is, but if it's about people, I'm sure I can do it. And I got the job. And it was very serendipitous because uh, it moved me out of doing a job that uh, didn't light me up very much and got me into a a whole other world, which has now created this career for me and this ignited a passion in me where I can actually make change in people's lives. So I, we worked um, and lived in that part of Australia for two years and then we moved back when we got pregnant with our first son. And uh, I went back to work probably seven months after I had our first son. Um, I had quite severe postnatal depression with him and I didn't really realise it at the time, but getting back into work actually allowed me to have another focus and have some adult conversation and focus on something other than my thoughts. Um, And so I got a job in an aged care home as their HR officer. So it was kind of, you know, quite a basic role. Uh, I was part-time and I really, I found my niche. Like I just, I've always loved older people. I was really close with my grandma and it really gave me the opportunity to not only look after people who were working there and who were caring people, taking care of vulnerable people, but I got to have conversations and build relationships with the residents who were living there. And so it really it really made me just feel so grateful to be able to do the work that I was doing. And so I actually worked there for seven years and worked my way up from the three days a week, um, and then had our second son in the midst of all of that. We moved away for another year for another country posting. I took a maternity leave break. And then um, I moved back at the end of mat leave and kept working my way up to people and culture manager. So I was managing about, I don't know, four different teams, and I think I had about 50 staff underneath me there. It was just, it was amazing. And then 
COVID hit (laughs) at about the six-year mark and, my gosh, it just just changed everything Um, because I saw people burning out. Um, I saw leaders trying to hold it all together and keep not only their people safe but stop, you know, or prevent resis from dying and being impacted and having, you know, lockdowns. And I think one of the hardest things that we saw was um, particularly in the memory support unit where, sorry, I get a bit emotional about it because it was really heavy Mm. um, to work through and to support people through that, especially families as well because they couldn't come in for a lot of it. But seeing residents in the memory support unit not being able to be touched so not only did we have masks on, we had, um, and a lot of communication with ageing, the ageing population is um, lip reading. And when you've got a mask on um, and you've got a shield on, so our nurses and our carers and the doctors and everyone who, uh, elder people who were coming in, um, you know, it not only was a physical um, touch barrier, it was a, I can't actually even communicate properly with people. Yeah, I think I think you know that's really symbolic of a lot of things that were happening in that in that incredible year of 2020 in particular. Um, but that that exemplifies everything that was happening around the world, doesn't it? And you, you're using this ph- phenomenal example of how really vulnerable people who were reliant on the touch for reassurance, on reading lips for communication and they couldn't do either of those so imagine how lonely they felt but also you touch upon something i think is really important i I got called in to organizations in that year of 2020 to help out hr teams because of all the teams that were being burnt out more than any other team seemed to be the hr teams in a lot of organizations because they had to they had to pivot so much. They had to almost make things up in terms of how do we support our staff. And in, in doing that, they had to give a lot of energy of themselves, but also work with brand new practices that hadn't been tested. So the, t- the pressure on them was quite incredible. So there were two groups of people I worked with an awful lot in 2020, HR people and leaders. And, you know, you've already talked about how many leaders were trying to hold it together, both for themselves and for their staff and for their their clients, in this case, the, the residents of the, the nursing home. In terms of HR, were you in a team? How did it impact upon you as an individual? If you were the only person in that, in, in that nursing home, how did it make you feel? The, what was the pressure like for you? Heavy. Um, I certainly, you know, when I, when I talk about leaders burning out, I was one of them. Um, and it wasn't only physical because you were, you had to be on in case there was a lockdown, in case there was uh, a change. We had to create a 24-7 hotline for um, family members to be able to ring through. We had to be very agile with our teams to adapt and adjust the way that we were able to service and take care of our residents and then still meet. See, we also had to, of course, meet the aged care accreditation standards, which means that you have to have person-centred care, but then trying to um, I guess, connect family members with their residents who may be non-verbal, they may be non-ambulant. How do you create that connection via an online Zoom meeting? And so yeah. we had to really adapt. And so there were times when we had our beautiful staff sitting with the resident and holding their their hand, but with gloves. And it was just, it was this really sterile 
environment that nobody had really anticipated the impact that it would have on not only the staff but the people who were actually living within the home and then the family members. So for me as the only HR person, I had to not only adhere to um, legislative and compliance um, specifications, I had to also take care of the well-being of our teams. And then I was also, so I had people used to, you know, I always had this joke with people, you know, oh, I should have a ticket machine outside my door mm. because, um, you know, or people would be like, oh, you need a waiting room. So if you've got, you, you know, you've got people lined up outside your door because so many people just wanted to come in and have a chat and just offload. But what I found through that is that I then really struggled to support myself through that process as well. And I guess, um, what was extra difficult was not really having uh, another HR person. I looked after the administration team, so a lot of those beautiful people stepped up and really assisted me. But with the things like industrial relations, you know, the, the particulars of recruitment, anything to do with terminations, um, anything to do with, you know, dismissals, all of that uh, still rested on my shoulders, but then we still couldn't recruit the amount of people that we needed because there was this mass exodus. So, you know, it was it was a real balance of how do we staff appropriately? How do we cover a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week roster, which is the same in policing, same in emergency services? How do, you, how do you get appropriately trained staff so that you can still adhere in a compliance situation? So you, you can't not have people who are trained to be able to take care of, of the people within the home. So there was this, these layers of complexity and, um, and I have high functioning anxiety already and I have all, all my life. So really for me, it was how do I balance all of my own stuff? How do I take care of my family? So my kids were at home. So I was having to uh, go in because I was an essential worker. So I was going into the office, homeschooling, um, my, my husband was working from home in and out. And so it was, look, everybody had a balance. Um, but being the only HR person was really hard. And the isolation that comes with that as well. You know, I've, I often talk about the loneliness of leadership and, you know, uh, you must have experienced a lot of loneliness. So tell me about uh, the journey, the transition, if you like, from being that HR person in this incredible organisation, but an organisation that at that time was going through incredible challenges, uh, and and we had we had uh, real issues within the uh, the residential care uh, sector in the UK. We had high numbers of deaths, uh, so I think a lot of people in the UK will completely resonate with what you're saying right now. Um, what was your journey like? to going from that environment to what you're doing right now? Uh, it was an exciting one, actually, because through the process of, uh, and, I, and I look back on it, you know, I'm a very optimistic person. And so for me, I can still rise from challenges. Yes, they might knock me down for a while, but I will always, I always believe that something better is coming and that the reason I'm going through mm. it is, so, is because I've got a lesson to learn and I've, you know, I've attracted that, that lesson and I need to learn it before I can move on and, and do my next whatever's, you know, meant for me. So um, it was, looking back on it, it was hard. It was probably one of the hardest um, periods of my career um, only because I felt like I couldn't do enough. No matter what I did, no matter what I said, no matter how much I showed up and, and was there, it wasn't, it couldn't be enough for everybody because yeah. there was only one of me. Um, through that, I realised that uh, leadership well-being, I'd, I've always been passionate about well-being in the workplace and mental health in particular, but 
what it really showed to me was, and as you were saying about leadership and leaders not taking care of themselves, was the the rate at which leaders were opting out, like tapping out, but mm-hmm. tapping out past their use-by date because they had nothing left in their tank. They had nothing left emotionally. And so it was actually starting to impact the workplace um, because they just physically and emotionally had nothing left. When I saw that, I thought, my gosh, what can I, like, what can I do? What can I create from this? Surely there is more. Surely there are more people that I can help because I have such a passion for people. I'm so excited to support people and help them and, and help them be the best possible version that they can be, but through their wellness. And so I, I started thinking about setting up a, a wellbeing consultancy, but what it's actually morphed into is it's leadership wellbeing through the power of kindness and connection because what I saw lacking was that. I love this whole idea of kindness and connection and linking it into leadership. It's something, it's a conversation that I've had with quite a few people um, in the last, you know, in, within the last year. So talk to me about kindness and connection in leadership, because ordinarily, you know, people might not to link those two words or those three words together. Leadership, leaders need to be seen to be strong uh, resilient and uh, uh, and make all the right and tough decisions that need to be made. And kindness doesn't really feature as as a significant part of leadership. So why do you think kindness and leadership go together? It's it's for me it's a no brainer, but it's because my brain works a little bit differently. I think to a lot of people, and I'm I'm starting to see this shift. So it's really interesting that you say that you've been talking to people about this. You know, over the last six to twelve months, because I've certainly seen a shift in. Um, a lot of the thought leaders starting to talk about kindness as an essential leadership trait. The reason for me that kindness is so important is because I think that I define, I know that I define kindness as something completely different to what people think kindness is. Kindness and niceness are not the same thing. So people will often see kindness as weakness, that you can't be a productive and strong leader if you're kind except except being kind is is one of the strongest things you can possibly do in my mind yeah i think you're i think you're so right i think uh, i think there's a better understanding of what kindness is in this what i keep referring to as a post-covid world because i genuinely believe that we've entered a whole new phase of our lives um but I, th- I, I re- remember seeing a quote from Jacinda Ardern at some point. Now, I think she's one of the most highly emotionally intelligent leaders out there. And, you know, she's really sh- shone a light on what it is to be a, an empathic, kind, compassionate leader and still get on with the job. And, and the quote was something like, you know, and I have to paraphrase it because I just can't remember it. But it was something to do with I, I, I was always told that to be an empathic or kind or caring leader is a weakness. But... It's not. And, and I remember a story in my own sort of life where um, I've always tried to practice emotional intelligence in everything that I do, in all my leadership journey. You know, I had uh, some department in the police service where I had 400 staff, I had multi-million pound budgets, um, and I was very often parachuted into failing departments or failing areas of business and, and to, to be expected to turn them around. And, and by and large, I did. I managed to turn them around. But my technique was always about people. Get the people, make the people happier, get the people inspired, 
uh, get them to want to do something, get them to understand what part they play in the bigger picture, all of this kind of, get them feeling included and involved and valued and appreciated. And they will work to the nth degree. And it very often happened. But you know what? Even though that was happening, I once got told by a very senior chief officer, Cole, you're really good, but do you know what? You don't seem to grip people enough. But do you need to? Why do you need to? What else do I need to prove to you? What do I need to do to prove to you that that gripping people is, you know, what we call theory X leadership is so outdated. Mm, And it is not necessarily the style to follow. Mm. I mean, we were talking about theory X, theory Y leaders back in the 1950s with uh, McGregor, Douglas McGregor, I think, actually started talking about it back in the 1950s. Here we are in 2023, and we're still thinking that that theory X, which has been disproven a thousand times over, that that is still a relevant leadership style. And I find that really frustrating. But I think more and more people are beginning to wake up to this idea of compassion, kindness, you know, human-centric leadership, as I call it. So are the doors opening? Are people listening to you when you are talking about this? I am really surprised, to be honest, at how much they are. Um, but then I am also very difficult to ignore because <laughs> yeah. you, go, you walk into yeah. their office with that flaming orange hair and say, I listen do. to me, I let do. me tell you about kindness. And I think for me, because it lights me up, like I get so, so excited and so really keen to just share what can be done and yeah. the potential of, I feel like this is just this untapped potential of what can be done within workplaces and it's like why are you not seeing what I'm seeing and it's why when I connect with humans like you and I go oh thank god like you see what I see you can see the importance of what taking care of your people within the business can create I mean it's got financial returns there is a bottom line to it. Yeah, there absolutely is. You know, there's a correlation. There's a correlation between how you treat your people, how they feel, how they perform and what the outcomes are. There is, you know, yeah. and, and it's not rocket science, but some no. people, <laughs> depending on how they see the world and how their brains operate, they want to see almost like this linear line. They want to see this, this, this like everything stitched together. They want to know that that leads to that. And sometimes you can't always convince them that that exactly leads to that. But we know it, common sense wise, we know it. Um, I was speaking to someone recently and they said, you know, do you, do you think you can change the world? And I said, well, of course I do. You know, I really feel like I can because I'll just keep banging on about it until I, until it happens. That's what keeps me you know, going. Even if I'm not, a, exactly. I'm just like, it's going to change. I just know it is because I'll speak to the right people and then you create the ripple effect. But what I do know is I can't, impact all the people at the same time and so there are lots of people who I talk to who go oh yep that's so lovely that's great you talk about kindness and I go yes yes I do (laughs) and don't patronize me but thank you but you know it's it's this you know they don't get it yet and I say yet because they they will and if they don't then they will just be phased out anyway I I think I think yeah you're right I think it might get phased out and you know, we've seen this time and time again where organisations aren't adaptable or agile or, or, or they're not pivoting enough or they're not reading the environment enough. And what happens? 
they get phased out. So the likes of Blockbusters, um, you know, in here we had a big, uh, big chain store called Debenhams, which everybody knew about. Mm. It that died. Was huge, wasn't it? it was it was huge, mm. and it died within the first few months of COVID. So adaptability, mm. agility, I think, is so critical in everything that we do. And the world is changing at a faster pace now than it ever has because we are living in this globalized world where things will change. You know, will be impacted upon by something that's happening in Australia. Could within 24 hours impact on the UK and vice versa. It is that kind of world that we're living right now. There was another subject I just wanted to touch on with you, Sophie, before we run out of time, and that is pleasing. So I was really pleased to hear that your husband's been in pleasing now for 16 years in the Australian police. He was in South Australian police, but we're in Queensland now. We're, yeah, he's having a break. But he's having a break, and I think that's what inspired me a bit because um, I am finding in pleasing here in the UK... There's been some surveys done. Uh, there's been quite a few, but it basically it shows that one in five police officers in the UK are thinking of leaving policing in the next two years. Wow, that's huge, isn't uh, it? I saw similar, um, uh, similar sort of media over in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, New York City police are, are basically hemorrhaging staff and they're really rec- uh, struggling to recruit new staff. Uh, but you're saying it's a similar picture in Australia as well from your husband's experience. So what's going on, do you think? Uh, Well, I think a lot of it is, um, and I don't want to speak out of term, but I feel that when we talk about uh, businesses being agile and adaptive, I feel that even though you need to adhere to particular guidelines and expectations within the police force, there needs to be some more adaptability and understanding of the trauma that police officers are facing every day on the job. So my husband has worked in quite a few different areas. He's worked on patrols. He's worked, he's a detective. He's a police prosecutor. So he's got a really interesting mix of skills and loves it. And the reason he got into policing was because he wanted to make a difference and help people. But what he found when he was in there was the majority of the work um, is, is domestic violence and is there's, and drugs. And the lack of respect that a lot of people within our community have for police is devastating. And I feel that um, the respect from communities, and I'm probably generalising quite a lot, but it's only because I've seen not only my husband, but his peers and his, you know, you become like, and I say family. No, I get it. I get it. Having been in the police, I understand what you're talking about. Yeah, you you live in this 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 protected bubble because you can understand each other. It is, and I think being coming from a you know a partner's perspective, watching your partner uh, go out to a job that you potentially don't know if they're going to come home on any shift mm-hmm. is really scary. But then when you uh, see them working these ridiculous shifts where the rosters are not 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 friendly to your mental health and well-being. Yeah. They are down on staff numbers. So even when my hubby was, you know, policing in one of our, our first country posting, you know, for instance, he was he worked New Year's Eve um and he was the only police officer on with a community constable. So an um one of the the local community constables was on with him as well, but not an actual um uh, trained police officer. And he was the only police officer on for an entire town of three and a half thousand people, which doesn't sound like it's very big, but because it is 
24-7, you are literally it, you're on call for the, and it was a rural location. So he was traveling like thousands of kilometers over through the night to try and go to different jobs while he was on call. And that's not conducive. So that kind of rostering and that kind of staffing, lack of staffing is not conducive to people staying well, first of all, staying happy, staying engaged. And the people who get into those jobs are not people who are actually just wanting to tote guns and, you know, shoot people because that's not what you want to do. You want to get in there because you want to help people. You're community-minded. You're a caring, empathetic, empathetic human being. When you get into a very heavily regimented sector where, yes, you have to have very stringent rules, but then you have the pressure of rostering, you have the pressure of um, seeing trauma every day, you have the pressure of a lack of respect from um, community, but then also having to meet particular targets. And I don't know if they have that in the UK. No, it's exactly the same. Yeah, and I don't know if it's public knowledge that you, that, that coppers have to actually reach certain number of targets um, in particular parts of the business which is an extra pressure. Traditionally, the UK Police Service has had KPIs, key performance uh, indicators uh, and targets that they needed to measure. There was a move within the UK to stop moving towards targets as such and have targets drive what we do. Uh, and they were they were trying to be more human-centric. But I think, uh, touching upon what you mentioned there, I think the public sector, the police service and the public sector as a whole has been through this incredible journey because they were at the forefront of the services being provided during that lockdown. And everything that you've talked about being, you know, isolated, lonely, maybe not, maybe perhaps misunderstood, maybe putting other people first before yourself. I think that's what public sector has been through. So our colleagues across any public sector service, predominantly, you know, healthcare, police, uh, and and teaching maybe my wife's a teacher i know that they they go into these organizations they go into this work because they are passionate they see it as a vocation so selflessly they give of themselves but i think we're now beginning to see the cracks forming where they don't feel valued and protected and they don't feel psychologically safe in their environments they don't feel that they their organizations are pivoting and that being agile to embrace this whole new world that we're in now uh, and i think you know I wish your husband really well, um, but, uh, you know, we've got the same situation here and I'm having a conference in the UK that I ordinarily wouldn't have done uh, in Birmingham on the 29th of April. That's just to help and help, you know, those cops who want to leave the service to transition out because one of the other things I find with public sector workers is they have incredible imposter syndrome, you know, because they are so about the service that they provide, they don't think about themselves. And I still suffer with imposter syndrome. That's eight years left uh, from the police service, you know. So I wish your husband well. Time's flown by, Sophie, today. It really has. I could carry on talking to you forever. <laughs> Same, it's so interesting. But you, I know we don't want to... You know. my, well, my producer will basically uh, kill me. Cut us off. You know. <laughs> no, he's a great guy, actually. Sorry, Pete. <laughs> oh, that's all right. Thanks, Pete. Thanks for taking care of us. <laughs> Thanks, Pete. He's taking me out for a meal tonight, so that's all good. <laughs> oh, is he? Well, what, what food? Nice, I hope. <laughs> uh, we're going for an Indian, I think, tonight. Stop it. Yeah, yeah. and Pete's oh, pain, nice. which is great. Oh, Pete's amazing. <laughs> Thanks, Pete. Thanks, Pete. Again. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, listen, Sophie, thank you so much for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, and I'm glad it's not too late for you in Queensland there. But uh, you brought a, a ray of sunshine into our lives here in murky little UK 
Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Cool. It's been lovely chatting. Thanks. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please do subscribe and click on notifications for new content. And of course, connect with me on LinkedIn. Take care. Have a great day.